right. Well, welcome again, everybody. If you're tuning in online, if you're on the atrium here in the room, my name is Ryan. And I am the lead pastor here at Crossroads. It's great to have you. If you're a guest this morning, thank you so very much for being here. Or if you haven't been here in a very long time, it's great to have you here. Um, I'll be right up front. I'd love to say hi, meet. If you have any questions, feel free to come and ask. I'm happy to lie. So come and uh, ask me anything you want, and I'll pretend I know the answer. But I'd uh, love, to, love to connect with you. If you are a guest, it would mean a great deal to me if you'd fill out that Connect card and then just put first-time guest or new here. That would be great. And we'd love to get you some information and help you get connected in any way possible. So thanks again for being here. We're starting a brand new series. If you are a guest, this is a great, uh, a great day to be here as we're jumping into a brand new series of talks. All of our Sunday morning talks kind of usually tie into a series. Every now and then we'll have some kind of standalone messages, but usually it's part of a series. And we're jumping into this big series that's grounded in stories. Everybody loves a good story. You like a good story? You ever told a tall tale? You ever gotten in trouble for lying, right? I want to I want to tell you two stories to illustrate the difference. There's different types of stories, right? And uh, I want to illustrate two different types of stories. Uh, one story I'll tell you is uh, we were camping this week, uh, camping this week at a campground called Glen Echo, uh, up the pooter, as y'all like to say here. It's weird to me, but that's what you say. Let's just own that, all right? And uh, I've tried every other which way to say it because it's just weird to me, but that's all right. Uh, that's the junior high boy still in my heart, okay? So listen, we're, we're there camping, and uh, we're, we're sleeping, and we have a, 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 what's called a hybrid camper. You ever seen these hybrid campers? So the, the ends kind of fold out like tents, and uh, so we have, the, it's, like, it's like the TARDIS. You, it all of a sudden becomes huge. It's like I'm carrying a three-bedroom condominium with me on the back of it. And so we're there, and we're sleeping in these tents, and all of a sudden, about 3.30 in the morning, we wake up to this huge banging noise, very, very loud banging noise. So I kind of unzip the little thing. I look, I don't see anything. The cabin, there's a cabin next to us. The light goes on. His name was Michael. We met him earlier. And uh, Michael's looking out the window, wondering what's going on. And uh, I, I go over to the door of the camper. I don't open the door of the camper. I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. Uh, and uh, I'm like, man, Bigfoot's out there. I don't know what it is. Big old lane cloud. So I'm, I don't see anything. It's all right. So I go back, lay back down. About, I don't know, about half an hour, 45 minutes later, hear another noise. Like, that is so weird. That's got to be the bear. It's got to be a bear out, you know, looking. So, and I'm like, I've never really seen a bear so I'm like, this will be, I'd like to see what's going on. So I unzip it, and I'm watching. I kind of hear something, but I don't hear anything. And then about 10 seconds later, here comes up this bear. And I'm talking 80-foot bear. Like, <laughs> I mean, this thing owned the place. And it just comes meandering up. And where I'm sleeping, okay, is about 12 feet from this bear in basically a tent that's five feet above the ground, right? And I'm starting to realize this is a false sense of protection, right? Like, I'm really not as safe as I think I am should this bear smell the Twizzlers that are in the cabinet over here, you know? And uh, the, the bear just kind of walks up, opens up the cooler that's on the porch of the cabin, kind of flips it in disgust because there's nothing in it, looks around, turns around, looks at me as if the bear knows something I don't know, and just kind of meanders back down and walks up the campground. And now I'm enthralled. Like, I woke Wendy up. I was like, Wendy, bear. So she immediately grabs her glasses, and we're looking. We're just watching this bear. Again, 
huge thing. Like it, I mean, and, I mean, just I mean, if it stood up, it'd have been 25 feet tall. I mean, it was gigantic. And the bear walks up the campground. You just kind of see it moseying, looking around. And I'm watching for about 10 minutes. About 10 minutes later, it just comes walking back down. And then someone had left the women's bathroom door open and light on. So the bear has to like go around. Like the bear's been here before. Like, like the bear works for Google Maps, you know? I don't know. So the bear walks, goes into the women's bathroom bathroom, is in there for about four or five minutes taking care of her business. I don't know. And she then walks back out. I assume it was a girl because she went in the girl's bathroom. And then, then like walks up to another camper, like, I mean, literally gets right up to the camper doors, like, you know, and I hear this thing. And, and then it just kind of meanders off. And that was the end of it. It was pretty amazing, but it was also a little frightening because I, I, I was watching. I was like, what if somebody who's in a tent gets up to go to the bathroom and walks into that women's bathroom? <laughs> so I was ready to yell from a distance, don't go in there. Don't go in there. So that's the story for you. Is that, that's when you share around the campfire, right? Now I'd like to tell you another story. So hold on to the bear story, okay? You got that one. Stick that one in your pocket. Share that later. True story it is. First bear encounter, all right? Another story is about, I want to tell you about the last person to ever be burned alive for heresy. So, uh-uh, kind of a downer, I understand. So we're making a hard right turn, okay? We got the bear. Now I'd like to tell you a story about the last person who has ever burned alive for heresy. He was a young man, and uh, in those days, as would happen, uh, they thought that he was being accused of teaching things that were heretical, and so he was arrested, imprisoned, and tortured in an attempt to gain a confession and repentance. Well, in the process of the torture and the, the everything that he did confess, yes, I have said these things that they were accusing him of saying about God, but he never repented. He would not repent. And they continued. They tried. Finally, the torturer said, okay, forget it. It doesn't matter. If the judge finds him guilty, which the judge will because we'll get a signed confession, uh, then he'll be sentenced to death and the fires will produce the repentance. And so, uh, they got the written confession, and then it comes time. The young man appears before the judge, and the judge says, uh, you've been accused of these things, and then witnesses are brought forth as they begin to tell about all the ways in which this young man would talk about God, all the ways in which this young man would describe God. And so when they were all finished, all the witnesses were done, the judge says, these are certainly dangerous ways of talking about God. These are certainly contrary. These are ways that could produce harm in the one true church. And so I pronounce that you are guilty. And, and, and you are guilty, and the sentence will be death by fire, so that you may make confession through the flames before you enter into the next life and have to face the eternal flames of hell. And he says, do you have any words? Do you have anything you want to say? The young man says, I I can't, I can't argue the conviction because what has been said of me is true. I have said these things. I have represented God in ways that are distorted. As you said, I, I'm guilty. But the only thing I would ask is that when the time comes on the day of my execution, that I get to choose who lights the fire. Judge thought for a second and said, okay, well, that seems appropriate, he thought. He said, because after all, what this young man has been saying about God, how he's been talking about God, has been kind of distorting the common people. And so it would be good to have a common person light the fire. He says, okay, we'll do that. So a few weeks later, the time comes. They 
prepare everything in the center of the market, center of town. It's a beautiful day. Everybody's heard about this case, and so the crowd that's gathering is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, all of a sudden, they, they've prepared. They get the steak, and they're all set. They bring out the young man. They're parading him through the people. They're booing him, all that stuff. And he gets up on the, plat- on the, the, the platform there. They tie him to the stake. And the judge, true to his word, gets the crowd to quiet down and says, This man is accused and been found guilty of speaking and teaching distorted things about God, things that are not true, things that are not within the one true church. And uh, he said, do you have anything to say? He says, no, I don't have anything to say. And the judge said, but as I said, and I will be true to my word, the one request you made was that you could choose who would light the fire. And so at that point, the crowd got a little quieter. And the man who was about to be burned at the stake kind of looked around, started making eye contact. Everybody started to get really nervous. Everybody's looking down because nobody wanted to have that on their conscience. Nobody wanted to be the one. And they all knew that this judge would make them do it, that this judge would force them to actually light the fire if they were chosen. So they're looking around, and they don't really know, and he's kind of looking, and all of a sudden he speaks up. It's dead silent. This young man who's tied to the stakes, they've got the, all the sticks ready to go. He looks up, he says, I am completely at your mercy. I am a child at your mercy right now. And what has been said of me is absolutely true. I have spoken about God in ways that are not accurate. I have spoken about God in ways that certainly distort God. He said, and I would just ask that the person who is not guilty of this charge light the flames. Light the flames. Now, two stories, a bear and a heretic. The bear story really has no point, (laughs) but it did happen. It's historically accurate, maybe embellished a little bit, but it's historically accurate. It did happen. If you had a video camera there, you would see it. Now, the story of the heretic is a made-up story. It's a story that teaches us something. It teaches us that we're all heretics, that we all distort God, no matter who we are. When we talk about God, we distort God. Why? Because nobody's God. (laughs) Nobody's seen we haven't seen it. We, we, we do our very best. And so there's a point to that story. Now, the bear story is what we'll call an ordinary story, right? It's just a story that's meant to engage us, and sometimes they bore us. Sorry about that, right? But the, the point, the idea of the bear story is it's the bear story. <laughs> it's just a story that is really about the story. There's no, there's no truth I'm trying to tell you there. There's no transformation in it. Maybe like don't keep a cooler on your patio, you know, maybe that's it. But the really, the, the story is just about a bear. It's about some people that were camping and the first time they ever saw a bear and how close it was. It's just a story about the story. And some of those stories are really great stories and some aren't so great. Some you kind of tolerate and you're like, oh my gosh, when is it going to end? But then there's stories about like the heretic. And we'll call these stories metaphorical stories. And metaphorical stories, what do they do? Well, they transform some part of us. Right now, we could do a whole then talk on how we distort God. And the idea is not to choose between orthodoxy, right belief, and heresy, wrong belief, but to choose between healthy heresy and unhealthy heresy. 
Because even what we call or what the majority calls orthodoxy is still a distortion of God. We just can't get away from it. Because as that song we sang earlier today, God is just bigger. And even Scripture testifies to that, that your ways are beyond our ways. Who could fathom the depths of your grace? Who could fathom the depths of your knowledge, right? There is this truth to we do our very best, but we should all understand that even orthodoxy is a type of heresy. Now, that kind of can scare us, but it just exists. It just is. And that should transform us and cause us to caution. So that type of story, it's a parable, right? It's a parabolic story is another way to talk about it. This parable, right? And we can think of parable and parabolic stories as stories that never happened, but always happen, right? They never happen, but they always happen day after day after day, day after day after day. And the reason we have like a problem with this, uh, and, and we see this all the time, it's like our brains have a difficulty with the idea that something can be transformative, but not factual. That's what's challenging for us. And the reason why that's challenging for us is because you and I all have a condition that I call enlightenment brain. We are all products of the enlightenment. And our brains and our living and who we are as being a part of the Western Enlightenment movement, it's transformed our values. And the Enlightenment brain fixates on things like facts and history, right? That's what we fixate on, not big ideas of truth. See, pre-Enlightenment brains get focused on big ideas of truth and community and transformation and mystery, but when we go through the Enlightenment, the scientific revolution, let's test everything, let's prove it, let's show it, we miss something that's really powerful about truth over and against facts. And so when we hear things or stories, when we hear things are problematic, oh, oh, wait a second, we get caught up. I'll never forget in my graduate work, I was doing work in the uh, book of, uh, was it uh, Ruth? Was it the book of, no, it was Esther, doing book, work in the book of Esther. And I'll never forget one of the... Um, one of the commentaries, one of the books that we read alongside of it, just a fantastic book, but this story of Esther that takes place, um, the big question was, is Esther a historical figure? Do we ever have, do we have any records of, of an Esther living in the Persian Empire? Was the Persian Empire ever as big as described in the book of Esther? Was there ever this kind of moment in time? And historically speaking, historians just can't find any evidence to think that there was this person, Esther. And, and, and to get stuck on that, you'd miss the beauty of the story. And the story of Esther is that to the Jewish people, it happens over and over again, right? We, we just see that the attempted genocide, right? That it's a story that transforms, that shapes. And I'll just never forget when I read in that little book, she said, Esther never happened, but it always happens. And that's the beauty of these really strong stories. And stories are used all throughout uh, our Scripture, the Christian Scripture, this kind of book of wisdom that is fundamental and foundational to who we are if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. And one of the most famous parables, but it's kind of not one of Jesus's, but if you've kind of been around Bible for a long time, you might have heard of it, but it's kind of a, a famous one. It's found in a, a book called Second Samuel, this book that's in the Old Testament. If you're new to Bible study, the Bible's broken up into two sections, uh, the Christian Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
And in the Old Testament, we have a, all these wonderful texts that give us kind of history and parable and story and people struggling with what is God like and how do we live faithful to this and how do we represent God in our time faithfully. And, and so there's this book called Second Samuel, and in it there's a story of a guy named David. And David became a king in the nation of Israel. And when you think about kings and you think about uh, the, the generations and you think about sitting on a throne and you think about the nation of Israel during this time period, if you know anything about the, the book books, the Game of Thrones, that's what you want to think about, because that is probably the most accurate representation of what the, the lineage of kings were within the nation of Israel. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> you can try and doll it up all you want, but you put makeup on a pig, it's still a pig, all right? And, and the reality is, it was just a horrible time. <laughs> I mean, it's just the reality. Violence, coups, family members against family members, all kinds of stuff. And David was really no exception. David had his own flaws, but David was considered to be the greatest king in the nation of Israel. And David basically had uh, fallen in love with a woman and decided that he wanted her. And so he had performed this maneuver where her husband would be killed. And, uh, and so he did this, and it's what happened. Her husband was killed, and he thinks he gets away with it scot-free. And now she's pregnant, and it's like, wonderful. I'm going to take her as my wife, and I'm the hero. He thinks he has it all covered. Remember, Game of Thrones, okay? Now, here's what happens. God calls to this prophet Nathan to come, and Nathan, the prophet, uses a parable to confront David because David was probably too stubborn, too powerful to just hear the truth right? David had too much power, had too much control, had too much ego. If Nathan would have just came in directly and said, you're wrong, you're bad, we got to change this, I can't believe you did this, he would have probably had Nathan executed. Just true story. That's probably what would have happened. So Nathan probably wasn't too excited to get the call. <laughs> I want you to go confront the most powerful person in your country who's a little off-center right now. <laughs> So the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 through 7, that the Lord sent Nathan to David. And so Nathan goes to David and he says to him, hey, tell me how you would judge this case. I got this, got this problem that I need help with. David, you're so wise. Oh my gosh, David, you are so wise. There's nobody wiser than you. And I'm just stuck. And so the Lord told me to come and I just, I got to ask you, what should I do? Help me out here. So he says, in this town, there was a, there's this guy, and, and there's these two men, and, and one is really rich, and one is really poor. And the rich man, he's got flocks and herds in just, you wouldn't imagine. I mean, I, I, we could go into the details, but just, he's got a lot. But the poor man, he's got nothing, nothing at all except this one little lamb. He's got this one little lamb that he used all of his money to buy, and he brought this lamb in, and he took this lamb into his home, and he nourished this lamb. And this lamb grew up with him and his children, was like his child, to the point where whatever they were eating, what little they had, they shared with the lamb. And the lamb drank from his own cup. And the lamb, you know, he spooned with the lamb at night, just cuddled up nice, kept the lamb warm. He stayed warm. I mean, the lamb was like a daughter to him. David's into the story now. He says, but here's where my problem comes in, David. This, this rich guy, the neighbor, like he got everything. He has this visitor come in, and this rich guy has this visitor come in, and he decides, I don't want to slaughter any of my livestock. So he spares all of his own flocks and herds to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. So what does he do? David, this guy, he took the poor man's lamb, 
this, like a daughter, took him, slaughtered it, and cooked it, and fed it to his guest. That's what he did. And David now is livid, livid at this story. It says David grew very angry at this man. And he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves death. A slight over-exaggeration. <laughs> a slight, just a slight, you know, over, like maybe we're, we're overreacting a little, David, right? I mean, I get it. But, but this is the state of mind, right? David's like, kill the guy. And then he kind of takes a breath and he goes, oh, he'll make fourfold restitution for this. No, in other words, give him four lambs, right? He's done this and was unsparing. And in one of the most famous passages in all of the Bible, Nathan looks at David and says, you are that man. Ish hisha is what it is. And it's just two little words in Hebrew. It's really powerful. He says, you the man, David. You're it. And in that moment, David, his eyes are opened and he sees it and he recognizes it. So it's a powerful story. It never happened. Oh, but it happened. And you see, Jesus understood the power of opening blind eyes with stories because he did it all the time. He used parables just like Nathan did. Jesus was a good Jew. He had to have known the story of Nathan. He grew up hearing those stories. And he then, when he enters into his teaching ministry, when he enters into his prophetic ministry, he does the same thing. And the way that he interacted, like what the writer of the Gospel of Matthew tells us, Matthew basically says, listen, the people, their hearts were so hard. They were a lot like David in that moment. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 15, it says, gross is the heart of this people. They will hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes lest they see with their eyes and with their ears and understand with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Right? Jesus is quoting this passage. This is the nature of the people right now that I'm dealing with. They're covering their eyes. They're closing it. La, 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 la. Like they don't want to hear it. They're stuck in it. Because if they hear it, they would have to be transformed by it. They would have to change. And it wasn't like, oh, I have to stop going and I have to give up cigarettes. That's not, no. It was, oh, I have to stop oppressing the poor. I have to stop stealing people's land. I have to stop oppressing people with my religion. I mean, there was bigger stuff involved, right? And so what does Jesus do? Well, Mark chapter 4, the writer Mark says that, well, it was parables. It, after Mark gives a whole bunch of parables, he says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to understand it. And without parables, he didn't speak to them, but to his own disciples, he explained everything in private. So when he would speak to people, he would tell them these stories because the stories could open their ears and transform it. So Jesus knew the power of story, right? Where did he learn it from? Well, he learned it from the writers of the Old Testament text that he would have heard growing up and hearing and listening. Now, think about the gospel writers. We'll call them the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They love stories too. But you know what they probably had? They probably had sayings of Jesus. Our earliest gospel texts that we have, that we can date, are collections of the sayings of Jesus. In the culture, it would have been the sayings of this teacher that would have been kept. And so our earliest gospels are really just sayings gospels. One of the most famous ones is the Gospel of Thomas, right? And so we have the sayings of Jesus. So they probably had all these sayings of Jesus, and they had stories about Jesus, and they put all of Jesus' sayings into context and gave color to it so that their audiences, the people that they were writing to, you know, maybe 30 years after Jesus, 40 years. John's probably writing 70, 60, 70 years after Jesus. They're writing to completely different settings, 
and their settings that say, we got to take Jesus and make Jesus relevant and Jesus uh, understandable to my people in their setting. And so Mark takes Jesus and shapes Jesus with stories so that his audience would understand. Matthew does the same. John does the same. Luke does the same. They use one another. And so the gospel writers use stories to give context and meanings to the sayings of Jesus. And those stories were about big truths. Now, if you, if you want to see this, if you really want to geek out on it, which I know maybe two of you do, <laughs> so I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, but listen, if you really want to see this, look at the arrest story in the Gospel of John and the Gospel of Mark, right? So the arrest story in the Gospel of John, Jesus is in total control. Like when they come to arrest him, Jesus says, who are you here for? And then the, all the soldiers collapse and fall down. <laughs> like they're worshiping Jesus in the moment, a bright light, right? I mean, Jesus is in control. He says, am I not to drink from the cup of that the Father has given to me? Like Peter's trying to like stop it. And he says, no, 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 I'm supposed to do this full of confidence. And this confidence carries on. Like he's telling Pilate what to do during the trial. Like Pilate's running back and forth confused and Jesus, I mean, it's just the picture of Jesus is quite unique there. But if you go to Mark, Jesus is in deep anguish in the garden. He's praying drops of blood. He's sweating drops of blood. He's in anguish. He's afraid. The soldiers come. They arrest him. In his prayer, he says, can't this cup pass from me? You have a Jesus in deep anguish, deep suffering. Now, Mark is writing to people who are in the midst of deep suffering. The Jewish war has begun. The temple's about to be destroyed. People are denouncing their faith. And Mark is writing to say, even Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer, and he made it through. And there's all, so, so you have this story that takes place to bring Jesus in. It's why we have four according to's and one gospel. We have one story of Jesus. We have one Jesus, but we have four according to's. The gospel according to Matthew, they, they took the gospel and they said, well, let me tell you this story. Let me tell you this story. And it transcended the moment. It transcended history because it brought it into this realm of truth. And so our anchor verse for this series, the one I want to encourage you to memorize, kind of a strange one. You might think, why would I have to memorize this verse? You don't have to do anything, but I just want to encourage you. John 21, 24 tells us something about the nebulous nature of stories of Jesus and just stories in general, how big they were. So this is what it says in John 21, 24. It says, there are also many other things that Jesus did, but if they were to be described individually... I do not think the whole world could contain the books that would be written. Come on. Uh, he only lived like 33 years, 32 years. I mean, surely we could contain the books, right? So what does this tell me? This tells me we should all relax a little bit, take a deep breath when we think about these stories. And we should recognize them for what they are. They were never meant to give us this play-by-play -play moment of Jesus's life. They are theology. They are meant to help us understand ourselves and understand God and understand the program of Jesus. And we can have all kinds of conversations about history and facts and, and how many times did Jesus go to Jerusalem because John says this many times and Mark says it, all that stuff. Wonderful to have. I'm all geek out on all that. But when that becomes higher than the truth, we've missed it. Because what the gospel writers were doing and what we have to do are take these stories of Jesus bring them into our present circumstances. That's what we're called to do. And so stories still bring historical, the historical Jesus. It brings the historical kind of realities of, of people and historical, and they bring it to our present circumstances. And this is good for Christians, for people who choose to experience God through Jesus. 
And so here's what we're going to do. For the next eight weeks, we're going to go and we're going to meet at the campfire together, all right? We're going to sit around the campfire and we're going to talk about eight stories for our everyday modern normal lives. So I want to invite you to sit at the campfire and allow these ancient stories to affect and change and translate into and transform you in your modern situations. So we got eight kind of statements. And the idea is this. You've ever sat with somebody and they've said to you, oh my gosh, I just blah, blah, blah. And you go, oh, that reminds me of a story. You ever had that happen? Like somebody says, oh, I was over in Denver the other day and this person blah, blah, blah. And you go, oh, that reminds me of the time I. So think of it like this, eight weeks of that happening. And here's the truth. Some of us feel like this, first week, next week. Sometimes following Jesus is just too difficult and I want to quit. Oh, that reminds me of a story. I got a story about that one that'll help you walk through that. We're going to talk about what that story is. I know nobody's probably ever thought this. Sometimes I just can't stand those people who, and then you fill in the blank. Well, I got a good story about that one that could transform us. Or maybe in three weeks, you'll want to say, sometimes I just feel too scared. Our founding pastor, John Smith, will be here, and he's got a great story that will intersect that feeling that can be transformative. Maybe you've said in your life, sometimes I just feel so useless. Oh, that reminds me of a story. Or maybe you've said, sometimes I just feel so judged. I got a good story for that one. I hope you'll come that week. Or maybe you've said, sometimes I just feel like I don't belong anywhere. I've got a really, really good story to share with you that day. Maybe you've just said, I just feel lost and confused. There's a good story for that. And then on Labor Day weekend, maybe some of you have said, you know what? My boss sometimes is so unreasonable and just downright unethical. So on Labor Day, I've got a good story for you about that one. So let's go on this journey. Let's consider these stories. But here's the thing. Don't hide from the story that confronts you. Because all of these stories are meant in some way to comfort us, but they're also meant to confront us, to bring us to a space in ourselves. But we don't like that. And so we start going, well, did it really happen? So don't, don't let that, because you've got to remember, these stories aren't about facts, they're about truth, right? The stories are about truth, not historical fact. That's why the Bible's full of round numbers. <laughs> it's meant to give you a point. So when you're, when you're, enlightenment brain starts to say, oh, but did it really happen? Did it really happen that way? I mean, come on. I mean, a whale, a man, three days, give me a break. <laughs> okay, listen, this question, did it really happen? Here's what I think that is. I think that's an enlightenment cop-out. Okay? I think it's an enlightenment cop-out. Because that's not really the question. Because the person who wrote the story of Jonah, like, they wouldn't even understand the question, did it really happen? Because in their pre-enlightened mind, the gods came down and visited with people. This is what happened. <laughs> Bushes burned but didn't burn. I mean, this is just normal. There was no question of whether it actually happened. What they would say to you is, it's real. It's real. What do you mean, did it happen? It's real. And so the better question for us to ask in all of these stories is not, did it really happen? And if it didn't really happen, then I don't know if I could believe it. And I get that. And you can wrestle with that. But the better question is to say, what does this story ask of me? Or better yet, what does it challenge in me? What does it challenge in me? Because the ultimate question 
in a life of faith is not, in my opinion, just my opinion, and I happen to have the microphone, just my opinion, did it really happen? When did it happen? Was, it, was there really 5,000 people? Was it really he just kept breaking it? No, it's what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Because that question transforms me. Because if I find the meaning and I have to now, as a, as a person deciding to follow Jesus, now I have to let that meaning shape me. And what happens to our world is that we actualize the truth of God in every generation when we do this. When we take these stories and we say, let's not get, let's not get caught up on, was Adam and Eve a literal figure? But can we take that story and say, what is the truth that it brings and the meaning that it brings to my life, right? So when you say things like, God is love, that's in, the, that's in the, one of the letters of John. God is love. Well, what did that mean then? But now I have to say, what does that look like now? Or even better yet, for a person in the first century to say, Jesus is Lord, what did that mean then? But what does it mean now, today? So as we wrap up this intro to the next eight weeks, what is God inviting you into? Do me a favor, grab that Connect card, finish filling it out, grab your offering envelope. If you're in the room, if you're at home, you can finish doing that. What's God inviting you into today? Perhaps, and hopefully, God is inviting you in to participate over the next eight weeks as often as you're here, to be present. Log in if you're at home or be here in the room, connect with people, and just walk through these stories together. And here's the second one I would hope that some of you might be hearing or might be willing to hear a whisper about God, is that you would invite someone to listen along with you. That you know somebody in your life who maybe they've had a bad experience where people told them, well, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to believe that Jonah was really swallowed by a whale, that it actually happened just as it was said. And if you don't believe that, you can't believe any of it. Or if Adam and Eve didn't exist as historical figures, then the rest of it's garbage. And maybe they've been affected by that and they're deeply have a love for God, but there is this space of just disconnectedness. I would encourage you to invite somebody to listen along with you. You don't have to invite them to come to church with you. Hey, you might find this. I'm going to be listening if you want to. Here's the link. Here's how you can listen to it. Maybe it's a person you have a relationship with. You could invite them to come and be a part of it in person. That's wonderful. I would encourage you to invite people into your home before you invite them into your church, though. That's just my general rule in life. <laughs> Otherwise, they become a project as opposed to a friend. And so I, maybe you'll hear that whisper. I love stories. I love Scripture. I love the Bible. I think it's powerful. I think it's sacred. I think it's beautiful. You know me by now. I don't get caught up in, did it really happen this way? Did it really happen? I, think we ha I, don't, I don't think we were given one version of the gospel for a reason. I think that's one of the most inspiring things that ever happened was that the universe allowed the early church to choose four according to's to mess with us. Because if you got four according to's, then there could be a fifth and a sixth and a seventh and an eighth for this present time that we can hold to and we can learn from and we can grow and we don't have to get caught up in the trap of certainty. All right? So that's it. Stand up. Stand up. Stretch out your arms. I got a blessing for you. And I want to remind you as you go or as you log off to submit that Connect card, your offering envelope, uh, whatever comes in for the Pieces Worth It initiative this week, we're going to give to uh, the Jabez Community Center there in Haiti, all right? So here we go. Arms open, bodies open. Here we are ready to receive from what God has for us today and for this week. And let me just give this blessing to you. May God bless you and may God keep you. 
May God bless you and may God keep you. And may the story of God's love resound in your heart this week. And as you enjoy the company of friends and family, will you listen? Will you listen to their stories of struggle and hope and then allow those stories to transform you? And may you find the courage in those moments to share your story too. And may your eyes be opened over the next eight weeks as we together explore these powerful, transformative stories. And may you see clearly how these stories can confront and comfort you in the very same moment. And may you also discover the faith to believe the truth of these stories, even as you might struggle or wrestle with the facts about these stories. In Jesus' name, amen. Have an awesome week, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.